Hi, I'm Kathleen Gallagher, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and the executive director of Five Lakes Institute. And this is How Did You Do That? A show about successful entrepreneurs and how and why they succeeded. They helped me really develop what became sort of my philosophy that, you know, you got to find something, a problem that's really worth solving that gets you excited about a solution. Lori Cross dropped out of her all-girls high school in Michigan because there wasn't enough physics and math to keep her challenged. Technical college was a little better, but she found her place at Northwestern University. There, she got a degree in chemical engineering and became the first woman to play ice hockey on a men's NCAA team. After getting her master's degree in biomedical engineering from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, Lori was recruited to be a systems engineer at Baxter Edwards Laboratories, where she commercialized a series of catheter-based innovations from the research lab and completed her MBA along the way. That launched Lori's career as a product entrepreneur at a number of well-known med tech companies. From creating one of the first video arthroscopy devices to developing an integrated smart workstation for anesthesiologists, Lori again and again disrupted the status quo in markets ripe for a fresh approach. She's now an adjunct professor in the University of Wisconsin-Madison's Executive MBA program, is founder and president of Mindspan Consulting, and is on the boards of several innovative companies. Lori, welcome to How Did You Do That? Thanks, Kathleen, for inviting me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Hey, uh, let's start. You made a decision to drop out of high school. What did you do after you dropped out? Well, looking back, I guess it does seem like a bold decision, but my parents had always uh, emphasized learning over degrees or certificates. So when I was telling them that, you know, I was kind of running out of material to learn in high school, they suggested that I just begin taking classes at the local engineering school. So I dropped out. That's what I did. Strengthened some of my core skills, but really started looking at the disciplines that would you know, get me excited and energized. And I found biomedical engineering and I was hooked. So I looked for programs and found there were only three universities that actually had the programs available. So I applied to all three. So you landed at Northwestern University. How did you end up playing on Northwestern's men's hockey team? Well, my parents are both Canadian, right? So our, our home was a hockey hotspot. That's all we did. Um, but I was the first girl to play on a local boys team when I was like 12 years old. So after that, we had some energy and we created the first girls uh, league, eventually ending up with a Can-Am tournament and then traveled to Sweden and Finland for the world's first women's international hockey tournament. So you get the picture. I loved playing hockey. And so I went to Northwestern. They didn't have any. So my only option was to try out for the men's team. And well, I figured it was a good way to, you know, balance out my engineering geekiness and maybe make a few friends. <laughs> well, and that that goalie thing, um, I, it helped to have brothers who like to uh, be the shooters, right? Well, exactly. They got very good at deking me out and I got pretty good at stopping them. So after Northwestern, you got your master's degree at Rensselaer. Then you were hired at Baxter Edwards in California. From there, you went to Dionics. They recruited you to Boston to start their arthroscopy division. You drove entrepreneurial projects at both. Tell us about one of them. 
Yeah, well, both of those early company experiences were so beneficial. Um, they helped me really develop what became sort of my philosophy that, you know, you got to find something, a problem that's really worth solving that gets you excited about a solution and then come up with a solution that's unique, that is uh, integrating like an alchemist, a whole bunch of different technologies from different uh, disciplines, and then bring it to market with intelligence. Don't just dump it out there, but really think through how you're gonna make that happen. So for example, dionics, you bring up that one. It was where we drove um, arthroscopic surgery. Most orthopedic surgeons at the time were doing open procedures. So an arthroscopic means less invasive, right? much less invasive, minimally invasive. So instead of cutting open the joint, we just go in with a little keyhole and a little straw device to look into the joint with one hole to actually do surgery in another. And at the time, there were a couple of surgeons that were looking through this really fuzzy optical straw, trying to assess whether this patient could benefit. And we thought, oh, there's got to be a better way. Can't we distend this joint, light it up, record what's happening and make it easier to not only see what was what was in the joint, but also form surgery. So a group of us got together technologies from deep sea diving to fluid mechanics to CCD cameras that were used in astronomy and miniaturized, integrated, bought it through, patented the technology, and we created the world's first video arthroscopy system with a lot of tech in it. And we were pretty excited. You actually make it sound exciting. <laughs> well, it was a lot of discovery, which is fun for engineers, but you know, putting it together in a practical way that we could actually manufacture, deliver, and maintain not so easy. Um, but just having the technology, many people thought, well, this is it. We'll just patent it, launch it, it'll go. Uh, but not so. <laughs> the surgeons, turns out it's really much more difficult to do a triangulation technique versus an open technique. So we started to find the surgeons that would be good at it. We had a little test we devised that allowed us to see who would naturally be able to transfer those skills. We just did a lot of uh, discovery of what kinds of patients, what kinds of payers, what kinds of settings would be most advantageous, which now, you know, most of this is done ambulatory. That was part of our idea is to avoid the, the hospital setup. So in any case, we kind of built the ecosystem, built the launch so that the people who needed it most would uptake it quickly. And then it took off from there. In fact, it took off so quickly, we got bought by twice, um, first by, uh, by Richards and then by Smith and Nephew. So I got further and further away from the things I loved, which is designing. Well, but I get it. I mean, what you're saying is it's not just the research and the discovery, but it's applying it to the market and in this case, building the market. Right, exactly. And, and doing so in a disciplined way that wasn't just out there, but using staging and pacing to really pick the most responsive segment and nail it. But you mentioned, you know, you kept getting to bigger companies because these acquisitions. So like so many entrepreneurs, you wanted to get to a smaller company. So you moved to a Finnish company called Daytex that had eight employees in the U.S. and sold around a dozen pieces of equipment here. Among other things, you figured out a unique solution for managing ventilator shortages during the SARS epidemic. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it's been a bit of a flashback with all the recent um, situation with COVID. But yes, we were, um, Daytex was 
quite a success story. Absolutely loved all the innovation there and the trust that was uh, imparted to us by the owners. But at one point we were building ventilators. And at the time of the SARS epidemic, there were numerous requests for purchases from all the countries across primarily Asia Pacific. And, you know, instead of buying 50 or 100 of these on an annual basis, they suddenly wanted thousands. And there was no way that we could produce, even with all of our competitors, could enough ventilators be produced. So we started to say, okay, how could we solve this problem? We said, could we ramp up production a little bit, 150%? Could we simplify design and get more uh, life-saving equipment made? Yes, but not enough and not in the timeline they wanted. So we started to go back to the use case and said, what, what do these customers really want? What they really want is the use of ventilators in the event that a viral surge happens in their country, and they want them ready to go. And we realized if we fulfilled their request, they were going to have thousands of ventilators sitting in a warehouse, not well-maintained and not really ready to go. So we put our heads together and said, well, what if we designed a different business model? And we tested whether it was possible for us to engage them in a contract where if they needed it, we would deliver just in time. And we negotiated that with many countries and created a central warehouse, multi-year contract, which allowed us to build relationships that paid off in um, so many ways, not only serving their viral uh, response uh, needs, but also creating additional business opportunities for the rest of our equipment post-pandemic. So um, it's still to the, this day, I think competitors scratched their heads thinking, I wonder what happened to all those ventilator orders? We just changed the rules of the game and, and actually met their needs. That's an awesome story and very pertinent, as you said. You know, there's a perception that it's really difficult to be entrepreneurial in a big company. Why do you think you were able to do it time and time again? Well, you know, big companies are difficult, but it's not impossible. You know, for me, it's about the risk profile. If you understand the risk profile of the owners, you can see that um, you've got to be focusing on prizes that are big enough, right? Enough to get their attention. But then think big, but act small get those small wins going, invest like an entrepreneur would without asking for millions, ask for 100,000, 50,000, and get something done. So small bites at the same apple allowed them to come along and build a sort of continuity of commitment to the project. But I always held myself to a standard of testing the desirability, the usability, the feasibility of the product so that there was no surprises once we scaled up. I mean, the advantage of a big company is once you know that this is a winner, it scales up much more quickly. So better to gain their trust because then when you say it's ready because you've tested it, they will um, enhance and, and get behind you for the bigger hits when you ask for them. I love the way you make it sound so easy. <laughs> years, years of work. <laughs> Not easy, but, you know, think big, act small. That's, that's sort of my motto. Uh, let's talk about how you came back to the Midwest. You you were in Germany to work on an IT startup for Daytex. You went from there to Madison, Wisconsin. How? 
Yeah, I was trying to do an information management uh, system in Europe uh, based on success I had in the US. When I took it to Europe, I was slapped upside the head because basically the same drivers didn't exist in Europe. So I ended up um, sort of reframing that business and thinking about how I would do that. At the same time, our company was purchasing um, an anesthesia machine company here in Madison, Wisconsin. And um, I was on the due diligence team with them. And we dug in, we said, oh, this is more of a turnaround than a cash cow. So the, the CEO of the parent company turned to me and said, we think you should run it because this is a startup. I said, no, it's a turnaround. He said, well, just think of it as a startup with uh, resources. So it was, a, it was an interesting way to frame it up because we really did have to start again, refreshing product line, channels, everything. Uh, and it was another great learning curve for me. And, and I love that experience. Great team. So you turned it around successfully. And then a year after GE bought what was now called Daytex Omeda, you moved to Viasis Healthcare, another turnaround, but this time in neuro and vascular systems. After years of commercializing technologies, uh, this was the one job where you finally got more than a salary. You had a payday more like an entrepreneur. How did that happen? Yeah, that was really nice. But I'll tell you, I, I will always be grateful to all the investors and mentors who allowed me to learn and fail on their dime. No, it, it was uh, wonderful. And, and for me, the, the greatest payback was the ability to actually bring these solutions to market, the kinds of um, innovations that would disrupt the healthcare system forevermore. Um, it was super rewarding once my dad had um, invasive cardiac surgery, and it was our equipment that kept him alive throughout that surgery. And I've had others who um, had a premature baby born that needed uh, nitric oxide delivery to keep the lungs um, until they were ready to be mature. And it was so rewarding. So yes, it's great when you get the entrepreneurial payout, but I also feel like the rewards just ramped up throughout my career to be able to, to make a real difference. So grateful for both. <laughs> so I want to ask you what you're doing now, but before we do that, I just th I think it's worth repeating, you know, kind of what your driving philosophy is. Let's, let's just review that. Yeah. Know. So no matter where I was, no matter what I did, it really came down to the, the three most important things being, you know, find a problem worth solving, one that really gets you excited, but has value for everybody involved. Then when it comes to engineering that solution, don't just go with what you have and what you know and what you're trying to leverage. Really open up with humility and explore other technologies from other industries, from other places, and don't be afraid to combine them because that's how you get that sort of sustainable, unique value. And then, you know, when you bring it to market, don't just try everything. Test it pick the segments at work, use the channels that respond and go small, but go hard and get it to work and extend from there. So problems we're solving, solutions that are creative and then uh, market launch that's very well disciplined. So on this market launch, what would you do if you encountered um, obstacles? You know, you, you find that you can't put it there. How do you pivot that? Yeah, you humbly pivot. I design and test. So you design early, test often. Uh, and when you are humble and listening to the market well, um, you know whether it's your execution that's failed, which means you should double down, or whether you've just got the wrong solution. I say pitch, pivot, or persevere. 
pitch it out if it's bad, pivot if you just need to tweak a little bit, and persevere if you're right and it just needs more time. And the art of those selections, well, it helps if you have a team and good mentors to uh, bounce things off of. So that's part of the secret too. Well, in a sense, you've become one of those mentors now. Tell us what you're doing. Yeah, that's what I love most now. The, since I had the payout, it was great. I could give back more. I teach at the UW uh, in the executive MBA, a capstone class on innovation and strategy. And I work with dozens of companies around the world trying to, to find problems we're solving and helping them look outward and bring together a diverse uh, range of technologies to, to make a difference in the world, but staying focused on, on getting to monetization. So I'm on the board too of a few very cool companies. Uh, one is an advanced oncotherapy company that will take a long time, but it's very creative. Um, a couple of business process ones, factory automation, um, customer experience one that works in themed entertainment and um, just never a dull moment, right? To expand what I did in healthcare to all the places where we work, we live, we play and see that the same sort of formula works, well, it just exposes me to all these really energizing people at a time when I think we need creativity and energy. So it's, it's well, been a real honor. You're clearly a citizen of the world, but it's great to have you housed in our Midwest ecosystem. Well, thank you so much. It's delightful. It's home for me, and I wouldn't choose any other place in the world. Thanks for visiting with us today, Lori. Great talking to you. It was a pleasure, Kathleen. Thank you very much. You can read more about this story and find links to resources by visiting wuwm.com. You can also explore episodes of How Did You Do That at wuwm.com, at the iTunes Store, or wherever you get your podcasts.